Welcome to Reframing Our Stories. This podcast is dedicated to deconstructing the stories we've been told about who we are and how we're supposed to be. I'm your host, Kara Houck. This episode of Reframing Our Stories was recorded back in December. As you will hear, we make reference to Advent. And it was also during the time when we were primarily on heavy lockdown for the pandemic. You will also notice that there are some minor audio issues that we have. However, please stay with us because it is an interesting interview where we talk a lot about God and the body and uh, infertility and just the way that we meet ourselves. So I hope you enjoy. On occasion, when I see a person online who is interested in similar things such as I, I decide to be brave and reach out to them. That is what I did with my guest today, Danae Ashley. Danae and I have known each other for about two to three years now. We joke that we are soul sisters since we both have red hair love theology, and are passionate about creating spaces for healing and conversing around sexuality. Danae is an Episcopal priest, a marriage and family therapist, spiritual director, a member of an online community project called Thank God for Sex, and is part of a group of providers for fertility struggle, miscarriage, and infant loss called PNW Fertility and Prenatal Advocates. Danae has contributed writings to multiple online publications and is a featured author in the book, Still a Mother, Journeys Through Prenatal Bereavement. She also is passionate about music, art, dance, and gardening. I am so happy to have her on my podcast to create a space for her as she does for so many other people. Danae, thank you so much for being here today. You are so welcome. I am delighted to be able to do this work with you and and just have some fun today. Yay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We always have fun. I know. I love anytime that we've gotten together to just chit chat. It just seems like the conversation just happens, (laughs) right? Like we're dancing. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I love it. Our favorite things. So what was your journey like becoming an Episcopal priest and then a marriage and family therapist? I always find this so fascinating how people get into psychology and, you know, psychology and how they marry the two together. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I, I was ordained as an Episcopal priest in 2008 and that journey was, a long time coming. I I grew up Presbyterian and went to a Presbyterian affiliated undergrad, majored in religion. And at the end of my time, I had a lot of friends that were going to seminary to Presbyterian seminaries. And they were like, Oh, are you going to go to seminary? And I was like, hell no. (laughs) Why would I, why would I become a minister? Why would I want to do that? Because what I, what I saw around me was you know, ministers that their lives were lived in a fishbowl and the, the pastor's kids that I grew up with in youth group, you know, they were not exactly well adjusted at that time in adolescence. And then again, who is, but it was, 
I knew that, that they didn't make very much money and that it would require more schooling. And so I said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do that to my life or my potential family. Why would I do that? So I ran away for a while. <laughs> and I think as, as many people do, but I became Episcopalian in my early 20s and my, uh, my, I, I was married to, I was married in my 20s to a man um, who was Roman Catholic. And so we came together in the middle way, which was the Episcopal Church. And I, I fell in love with the prayer book and the poetry mm. and just the, the dignity and mystery of God within the liturgy. Ooh, and, yeah, <laughs> and that dance between yeah. all of that, right? So I got involved with the Episcopal Church and very quickly um, the, the church that I was attending um, originally, uh, we moved away for a while and then moved to another town. I'm, I'm from Washington State. I'm originally from Spokane, in Eastern Washington. And we moved to another town um, and the, the priest there, he took me to lunch one day and he said, so we, we were talking about the, the weather and he said, well, he just looked at me with his penetrating gaze and he said, well, have you ever thought about being ordained in the, in the Episcopal church? And I, I had a very mystical moment. I, it was like my world had been off kilter and suddenly everything righted itself. Mm. And I felt like you know, there was deep joy welling up in my belly and tears just sprang to my eyes. And it was like this huge cosmic, duh. And I responded in a very human way because I, <laughs> this all happened within a split second. And I said, well, I did major in religion, but what, what does it entail? And I had a lot of fear, like, go back to school. I don't want to do all those things. Um, and he really encouraged me. And then the, my, what I consider my home church in Spokane, that, that priest had kept in touch and had, had really mentored me in my, my Christian faith, but also my, in my Episcopal uh, tradition. And so eventually when I moved back to Spokane, he, he helped guide me through the ordination process, but it, it was no surprise to anyone that I told <laughs> they all like, yeah, Isn't we were just funny? waiting. <laughs> like they see it for you. This right, exactly. Thing happened to me where people are like, are you going to seminary? I'm like, you've got to be joking. <laughs> <That's what laughs> right. Ended up right. There. Yeah. So, yeah, so it, it, it was definitely a, an individual call and a communal call. Mm -hmm. And that's how we do things in the Episcopal Church. And we go through a process. And so I went through the process in the Diocese of Spokane, uh, where I'm from, and um, ended up doing uh, part of my Master of Divinity at Gonzaga University uh, with the Jesuits, and then finished at Sewanee, which is the School of Theology at the University of the South in Tennessee. Oh. And very glad that I did all three of those schools, my, my Presbyterian undergrad, my Jesuit, you know, partial MDiv, and then finishing at my Episcopal seminary because they, they all, everything kind of came together. And I feel like I have the richness of all of those, those traditions, the Protestant, the, the Roman Catholic, 
and then of course the Episcopal tradition, which does tie in both both parts. Wow. So that's that's how I came to be an Episcopal priest. I'm sorry. I said that's very rich in a way. Like you have all those different kind of um, meanings, you know, that you can uh, pull from. You know what I mean? Like with yes. in terms of the theology and the practices and yes, definitely. Cool. Yes. So in the midst of my seminary work, um, we we had you know pastoral counseling classes. I actually did most of that at Gonzaga. Um, but but what really interested me, and one of one of the reasons I feel deeply drawn to being a priest is because they priests get to journey with people in their story, and I really like people's stories. And we were doing the pastoral counseling pieces in theory, and I thought, you know this is not, uh, this doesn't seem to be enough because what I observed in my field ed and, and in just being a Christian person in community, it just seems like we all need as human beings more training in active listening and being able to be with people in crisis because life happens and also being able to be with people in joy in a very uh, authentic way. So I had already thought way back and without realizing it in undergrad i had done religion and then i dabbled with maybe doing a double major in psychology or maybe doing a double major in teaching which psychology teaching religion wow what does that equal a pastor <laughs> right so so i already got it like god is already moving me in that direction and i thought wow i need more training and so in my first call, uh, it was in North Carolina, I ended up uh, doing some, some soul care for myself, just figuring out who I was as a person, as a priest, and uh, went to Jungian analysis. Um, if, if the listeners are familiar with Carl Jung and his theories, um, doing dream work and active imagination and the unconscious and complexes, all of those those uh, things are what what uh, makes his work very unique. So I started doing that, and I had a dream where I shadowed my analyst, uh, and, he, and I shared that with him, and he was like, I've been waiting for you to realize that this is part of your call, too, is to be some type of counselor. Yeah. And so tucked that in my back pocket and then proceeded to move on to a call in New York and then a call in, in Minneapolis where we finally were staying there long enough for me to go to school. And in talking to my dear friend, uh, Kathleen, who's also a, she's a, a union analyst as well, but also has deep roots in ministry she said you know you need to do something that makes sense for ministry so and that you can get licensed in so marriage and family therapy made the most sense to me from for what i was doing as a priest because that's what we're dealing with we're dealing with um individuals families groups uh couples systems always in the church uh in religious institutions all all sorts of different systems and so 
I, I decided to pursue that line of licensure and ended up going to um, Adler Graduate School, which Adler was a contemporary of Carl Jung. So Alfred Adler and Carl Jung were both uh, initially, I would say, loosely acolytes of, of um, Sigmund Freud. And then they broke off and kind of did their own things, um, but they're not, they, they were very friendly with each other, but not necessarily with Freud <laughs> afterwards. So, uh, an Adler's focus is on encouragement, building strengths, and the, the beauty of mental health only being found within community. And so, that very much appealed to me because I feel like in, in Christian community and other communities, that's where we, we help each other from isolation and from... And, and, from drawing away from the world and from God. So I, combining those, those things that I had my personal experience of Jungian analysis and then, and then learning the theories of Adler and applying that to individual couples, family, group um, counseling, it made a lot of sense for me. And it also ties back into there's Kind of a, a sub motto for the Jesuits, and that is to be a contemplative in action. And for me, that uh, that was who I was becoming. And um, this contemplative, this person who had been able to sit with dreams and the unconscious, and and really diving in deep into the inner world, and then also being in action in the outer world. And and it, with the Adlerian theory and the encouragement and the building on strengths and the and the uh, community action for mental health. So that all happened in Minneapolis and then moving to Seattle, I knew I, knew I was going to get licensed um, in Washington state. And so I opened up a private practice that's part-time. It's called Soul Spa Seattle, LLC. And uh, I work, so I currently work for St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Seattle in the Green Lake neighborhood, and then I have my private practice in a, in, a, in a suburb just north of Seattle called Shoreline. So doing both of those things has been really following God's full call to me, um, and I think you get a little bit in the, people feel like, oh, you're bivocational. And really, I don't like to be called that because I feel like this is my whole call. I am called to be fully priest and fully uh, engaged as a therapist. Um, so when you encounter me, you encounter all of me. And I don't feel like it's, it's bivocational at all, but I understand like job-wise, I have two different jobs. <laughs> well, it's kind of, I feel a lot of the times, right? Like it's so beneficial that you ha do have the extra training um, in therapy because like you said, so many people go to priests and pastors, um, reverends, what have you, to seek the care and um, seek the professional mental health that they're looking for um, because sometimes people still have, I think, an a stigma around therapy, right? Um, but you need extra skills in trauma and crisis, like you talked about, to be able to fully, I think, engage with the needs that 
so many people have and are bringing to these religious figures. And so to be able to harness on both of those, I think is just so necessary and needed and as a gift. And so I do see that as a very holistic <laughs> vocation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I really also feel deeply called as, as someone who has had a variety of different types of calls and has experienced the church in a lot of ways. Um, and sadly, a lot of hurtful ways as well as, uh, as joyful ways. Um, I, one of my calls through my therapy practice is to really support clergy. And so I invite uh, clergy of all different denominations and faiths to send me, send me people for premarital counseling so that I can take that off their plate because we are not really equipped to be all these things uh, as in our seminary training. We have enough to do a few pastoral counseling sessions and unless you're really into it, you know, a lot of people aren't, they really feel called to do more of the preaching and the teaching aspect of their, of their priesthood or, um, or their pastoring. So uh, I really wanted to be a resource for my colleagues and a support for them in, at Soul Spot in order for them to have energy freed up to do the things that they feel passionate about and that they feel God is calling them to do. So me taking on this, these parts, um, you know, it has been part of the call as well. And also I run clergy care circles, which are, uh, I call them therapeutic group spiritual direction. <laughs> um, small groups and we, we meet once a month and we look at a theme and we do some reflection spiritually, but then we also do like a therapeutic exercise. And it's basically, I try to design it like a little mini two hour retreat just for a clergy person. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, they're really fun. But that's another way that I feel like the, the soul spot aspect really is the, the overarching umbrella for all of the ministry that's happening, um, including the church. So well, it's so important to pe for people to realize too, especially right now during the pandemic, I'm seeing so many pastors who are just struggling. Yes. Um, the mental load, the emotional load, and they're trying to navigate um, the emotions of, you know, their entire congregation Yes, that are very polarizing in some cases. And it's, it's really doing some mental harm on pastors. Yes. Yes. I think what happens is that we're all, this is kind of my mantra. My, any, anyone that, that has listened to any sermon or anything I've done or read things, I keep saying this, but it's, I think it's good to remind ourselves we are all collectively going through ambiguous loss. We don't know what, we don't know where we're going. We don't know how it's going to end. We're all going through adaptation fatigue. You know, look at, look at what we're doing right now. We are everyone currently on Zoom. <laughs> um, and then we're, we also have our, our personal losses, our individual losses, in addition to that overarching pandemic stuff going on. So there's a lot happening for each individual. And then you look at that collectively within a church, and then you look at the pastor or the priest's role in that 
And I think what happens is, you know, it's already emotionally taxing to be a pastor. And yes, we are all deeply called to this and we want to do it in our own ways and, and, you know, with the spirit working through our personalities. But I think what our, what some of our congregation members forget is that we are people too. And we too are going through the ambiguous loss, the adaptation fatigue, the personal losses. And so you know, that everybody is kind of acting out and no one is at their best, including your pastors, because they're going through all of that as well and trying to lead you and keep the church afloat so that we have something to, um, to step into afresh when, when things are returning back to fully in person and, and we're able to engage in ways that, um, that, that, we're, that are more familiar to us. But the church that we were this time last year is no longer existing. And that's a really hard grief for people. Yeah. And it, do, it won't exist. That, I, I want to complete that thought. It, it won't exist. It's going to be something new and hybrid. Yeah. 100%. You know, with the, with the Zooms and, you know, the in-person and live streaming, all the things. Someone has said to me that any change is a sense of loss and grief. And I think mm-hmm. exactly. we don't give that enough credit, you know? And so, and I know like when, with any change or something that's new, it takes almost three years or more to get used to it. And mm-hmm. then it changes again, you know? So it's like this mm-hmm. cycle right. of learning <laughs> the, the how to um, accept grief and have it almost be a part. It's a part of us and have it to be almost our neighbor or partner in a way that we can continuously communicate with it and try it on her size and say, what needs to change or how do I need to adapt my interaction with you? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think too often we forget those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. And the grief, you know, pain that is not transformed is transmitted. And I think that's really what's happening a lot for folks. They're grieving deeply, don't realize that it's grief that's coming out and it's coming out sideways in our congregations and with our spouses and our, you know, our neighbors and possibly our pets, you know. So if we don't transform our pain, it's going to come out and be transmitted to others. And so really paying attention to how that is happening I think is really important into billboards. <laughs> I know, right? That's not originally for me. I, I learned that when I did clinical pastoral education, someone said that and I thought, gosh, you know, that is such a deep truth. Right. And, um, and it actually, I, if you don't mind, it leads, it leads into some of what we were going to talk about today around uh, fertility struggle and loss um like you were saying grief has to in some way become your companion and your your friend uh and those that have gone through fertility struggle they they are very well acquainted with grief Mm. and we we all are i mean i think i think um you know what what is the the old adage about you know what do we know for sure in life death and taxes i also want to say change is also the constant in life. There's always going to be taxes. There's always going to be death and there's always going to be change. (laughs) And that's just what it is. Right. (laughs) 
Well, so um, okay, go ahead. No, no, please. Sorry. I was going to say one of the reasons, right, that I reached out to you in the in the beginning, I think three years ago, was that I found you on a virtual space mm -hmm. um, related to sexuality, because mm -hmm. that's my interest, right? And it's this community, thank God for sex, that Tina Sellers has has started. Oh. And I saw you on there and I was like, oh, it's this Episcopal priest, like helping in this and talking about shame and I need to get to know her. So let's, I would love to start there. And then we mm -hmm. can talk about how you've been very um, lovingly, I think, shared with me um, a little bit about what you had mentioned with infertility and miscarriage and different things like that. So talk to me first about what made you get involved as a religious person with this community where we can talk about sex and dispel shame. Mm, okay. So when I came to Seattle and I was getting licensed here, I had to take a, a class uh, that was different than some of my requirements in, in Minnesota. And it was a it was a human sexuality class, and I ended up taking it from uh, Dr. Tina Schirmer Sellers at Seattle Pacific University. She actually is, she's retired now and is fully at the Northwest Institute um, on Intimacy and doing amazing things there and has, oh, she's, I cannot say enough about her. I, yeah, she has been a mentor to me in, in ways that she doesn't even know. So, um, Anyway, she was teaching this class and it was fantastic because she was, she really was helping these people from all walks of life, but a lot, a lot of folks um, that came from purity culture and grew up that way, uh, helping them to understand that, that God created our bodies God created our senses, God created our sensuality and our sexuality, and that if we really believe that, that when God created us and said it was good in our Genesis story, then that, that, has, that, has, some, that has some meaning, that has, that has a, a ripple effect, right? So, <laughs> I'm sorry? I said that has some weight. I mean, it means something, right? That it's right, right, right exactly. I, sorry, sometimes the the Zoom, as everyone knows now, sometimes the Zoom <laughs> kind of goes in and out. Uh, so I, I apologize. Um, so anyway, the so I was just intrigued by this, and then she she was the mentor for this group, and so when she was talking about it and, and encouraging us to check it out. I said, oh my gosh, yes, of course I will. Because I think it's really important that leadership in, in the churches have a healthy idea of what it means to be human mm. and what it means to be a whole person. And, and as a therapist with my, with my Adlerian teaching, Adler was very holistic. He was an ophthalmologist before he became a, a, a psychologist, basically. Um, and so he was always looking at the person as a whole. Yes. And, and he was not into diagnosing, you know, like, 
like we do now, like DSM-5, he would never do that kind of stuff. He was like, well, how are these parts interacting? Because he was thinking about it as a physician, like, okay, if your eye is doing this and then it's making this happen with your balance or, you know, whatever, um, I guess maybe that would be your ear, but, you know, you can't see, right? So this is other things happening. So everything's connected. So I, I took that into the class and I was thinking, she announced about, thank God for sex. I was like, yeah, this is, this is so for me. And I think that it's really important for our religious leaders to, to um, be seen as, as people that can support healthy ideas and healthy understanding spiritually about our bodies. Um, there's, there's just been so much separation between body and spirit, and yet God did not create us that way. So if we really look at our stories, that's not what we're hearing at all. And my goodness, as a Christian, Jesus himself, God poured, I mean, here we are in the Advent season, getting ready uh, for the birth of Christ. God, the word comes into human flesh, God with us. And if that is, I mean, if that's not, if that is not um, wonderful calling, yeah, I'm sure Sophie's distracting me with her barking. Um, (laughs) She has things to say. She agrees. If that's not, what what it means to be good as a human in your body, then I don't know what is, right? So that's the opportunity to be part of that group that was publicly doing events and exploring um, documentaries and local resources around um, dismantling the shame with our our spirituality, but our, especially our Christianity and sexuality. I, I definitely wanted to be part of that. That's awesome. I love that. I love everything how you just said it were the people who represent God for so many, right? The leaders who talk about God, I believe 100% need to express the beauty that our body is within that and who we are sexually, right? Because that is part of God's great creation. Mm -hmm. So I love that you have recognized that and that you have um, gone forth to learn more about that and to be a part of that community. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that have come out of that that people have discussed within that atmosphere that you have held on to? There's been a lot of things that the, the part that, that comes out for me is how much pain the church has caused individuals and, and marriages and other kinds of couples. I I mean, you know, not, not being married, but just being couples, um, the the pain that is expressed in the stories that we would hear at our events and how they were glad to be amongst a supportive community where they could actually share how the church basically spiritually abused them and so that they were hating their bodies and you know there are people who with suicidal ideation i and 
and broken relationships because they did not have good relationships with their bodies or their sexuality at all. And so to be a place of safety and affirming uh, who God created you to be, I mean, that, that was really important for us. And that's, that was my biggest takeaway is just how much pain the church has caused. And when I say the church, I mean the church with like a capital C. Um, and so, and then how much we needed to step into that breach and be healers there. And how do we transform that pain so it will not continue to be transmitted? Going back to that, that little uh, quote. Um, <laughs> yeah, that billboard. So, so I, I, I hold that with me as I move forward and see the ripple effect in that, um, in my work as a therapist and, and my work as a priest in general. So do you see crossover since you're working with, within religious spaces and in this therapeutic space? And what can you tell us about some of those stories that people are telling themselves? So what I, what I hear a lot of is a lot of, a lot of questioning about, am I okay? You know, there's, there's, there's no, when you come from um, a culture that has created shame, and I think, you know, with shame, there's a lot of secrecy, there's a lot of isolation. And so, um, you know, you'll get people who don't even know how their bodies function at all, or, or the spectrum of how bodies can function. So, um, you know, like a, like a woman doesn't even know what, what a vulva is. They just call it, oh, that, you know, that place down there. <laughs> you know, so even just some, for some people, just even starting with proper names, uh, medical names of their body parts and getting them to actually look at themselves in a mirror or something, if you're, if you are female identified and have those parts. Um, so, you know, just even starting from basic places like that, but then, then in, in couples there, there was religiously, I, what I, stories I've heard, um, were that they should just, you know, they should save themselves from marriage, save themselves from marriage, and, and which, okay, there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with that, but they don't even, they were never encouraged to even know their own body, and so they just thought, they were told, oh, you'll know what to do when the time comes. Right. Well, what, what does that even mean? Um, with our, with our own bodies and any kind of skill or, or something that we're going to try for the first time, they were never, people were never told like it, it's like anything else. It's like learning how to ride a bike. Like it might not work the first time the way that it shows in romantic movies or whatever. Um, so there's, there's broken relationship in that, um, and, and the expectations that are really built up into what, uh, you know, the, I saved myself for marriage and now this is what's happening and there's no pleasure in it. Um, so I hear stories like that. Um, you know, there's, there's so many stories in, in the LGBTQ community that I've served. Um, 
about a lot of different hurt and shame about bodies and who they are sexually and um, with their sexuality and the spectrum of sexuality. Uh, just oh, too many to count. It, it's, it is such a travesty. Um, so lots of things that people have been told over the course of their life in their church religious communities and then they come to therapy and they're at they're at these crises um not only faith crises but you know about who they are as people because their faith has told them that they should be a certain way and then this isn't happening so it's yeah it's all connected and intertwined and you know the the pain i mean there's just again it that's the that's the common theme running through there those are the stories it's just so much pain and finally the pain is too great and people either complete suicide or they come to therapy yeah. sometimes they do both which is unfortunate but um you know it takes a lot of time like you were saying with change it takes a lot of time to to uh change those thought patterns and to help someone love themselves and to understand God's, God's unconditional love for them because they, they think that God hates them and that they, you know, did something wrong and they did something, you know, they're not, they don't have enough faith. And this kind of goes into the fertility piece. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what I get from those kind of uh, couples and individuals to come in for a fertility struggle is, well, I must be, being, being punished, you know, I don't have enough faith. Um, I must be doing something wrong. God hates me. All of those kinds of, of stories that they tell themselves, but also, you know, that they've been told yeah. by their religious yeah. communities. Because we're given, so um, given scripts. And I think especially, you know, when it comes to marriage and childbearing, it's, it's like, well, this is, this is your role. This is what happens. This is right. what to then experience pleasure that we can't talk about outside of a marital relationship. And right. so when these things uh, start to happen and then the story that you've been told doesn't look at all like what is happening. Um, and when for some reasons we're not able to then bear children, you know, then, then that whole sense of, you know, I hear people say, am I broken? I'm being punished. Mm -hmm. And that sense of inadequacy. And it's just, it's heartbreaking to me. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the relationship with your body is distorted because you think I'm doing, I'm doing all the right things. I'm doing everything my doctor told me to do and I'm praying and I'm doing all the things and it's still not working. Um, and I think in this day and age, we often feel like we do have a lot of control over our life in certain ways, but this really taps into that, that deep primal understanding that we don't have control mm -hmm. and we don't, we birth like having children, the fact that we are here at all is, is a miracle in general. Um, because all these different things have to line up in order for it to happen. And even when we medically intervene and those things should be lined up, it can still not happen. And so we immediately place the blame back on ourselves and have all of these 
all of these stories that we tell ourselves that our body is broken or, you know, my, my husband, you know, didn't do X, Y, Z, or, you know, we have, there's, there's just so much because again, it's the loss. It's the loss of a dream. We thought we would have 2.5 children and the, the house and the spouse and, you know, the car or whatever, the job by this age and our lives rarely turn out what we think about when we were, when we're young. So there's just huge loss. It's a big, big loss of dream. And the grief is astounding. So when, when people come in and they're talking about it, there's just so much, especially for the women that, that it's happening to um, their bodies. That's where their, their bodies typically are the ones that are shamed and, and historically have been shamed. Um, because historically, of course, you know, the man's sperm would be working, right? You know, um, but we know now, of course, that, that that's not necessarily true. And sometimes when sperm and egg come together, it's not a good, it's not a good mix and it can come from the sperm and just as much as the egg. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of facts that we can combat some of that, that cognitive distortion with, but it's still emotionally so difficult because it's the loss of a dream. Does that make, am I making sense? Oh, yes. Completely making sense. (laughs) What are things that people need in that case? Like in how do you offer, how do you minister to that loss for those who have experienced miscarriage and infertility? It is, it's such a hard road. Um, earlier when, when I was talking about how within the pandemic we're going through ambiguous loss, people who have gone through fertility struggle are very used to living in this space. And that's, that is what it is. It's ambiguous loss all the time because there is no closure. It's not like someone, you know, died and you know, you're going to have the funeral and then you're going to be sad, right? Um, For a long time. It's, you get your hopes up. It's this huge roller coaster of emotions. So you get your hopes up and then the woman menstruates and then you get your hopes up you know, and then the embryo, you know, didn't test out, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't keep, it didn't keep going, you know, whatever. It's just this, this roller coaster. And so the losses are all the time and you never know when it's going to end. And it feels like you're living in this fog and you just can't see how it's going to end or, or if it will end in the way that you're hoping. So that's a hard and stressful place to live. And it really does a number on not only the individual, but couples who come in, you know, especially if, if the, the non-caring spouse isn't experiencing the stuff with the body, which is a whole other layer. They have their own grief that they're going through, that they are their own person doing their own grief in addition to experiencing this journey in a different way. So the spouses are often kind of forgotten in the midst of the other, the person who's the, the bearing, uh, the carrying uh, person. So there's also a lot of grief for the spouse. And they, they will often say to me, 
I just, I I can't watch this person that I love the most in the world, like go through this again. Um, because their pain is so great that it's too great for me to bear their pain and my pain, you know, like it's, there's so much caring within these relationships. And then at the same time, remember it's grief, it's loss pain that's not transformed is transmitted. We all are grieving differently. And there's expectations that because I'm grieving this way, you should be grieving this way too. And that's not necessarily what happens. So there's a lot of mismatching that goes on, especially with couples. Um, let alone families. Uh, yeah, throw families in there. It's, there's a whole other thing going on. <laughs> I was just thinking just now too, that it must also take a toll um, sexually, right? Because after mm-hmm. a while, when it's when we have this set goal in a way, like in mind of procreation, sex right. becomes this act sometimes, or sometimes it become like this duty of like, okay, we're going to do this, so this produces this. But then when that doesn't pr- produce what we are hoping it would, it would to get back into a sense of relationship within our sexuality and our sex life also Mm -hmm. has to be a change, right? It has to be Mm -hmm. a journey because I would think that's also hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's, that's part and parcel of the whole thing. Because when you, like, if you're trying naturally, especially, and that's the goal, it, it often feels like performance. And then you get performance anxiety and the, like things are not happening the way that you're hoping and it doesn't feel sexy anymore. It doesn't feel free. It doesn't feel like it used to. It feels like, okay, we're, we have this goal and we have to do it. And um, I remember I'm, I'm dating myself, but I love sex in the city. And I remember there was an, um, there's this whole story arc of one of the characters, her name's Charlotte, and she was trying to have a baby and there, there were timers involved and she would be like, I'm ovulating. I have to have sex right now. Like, you know, I mean, it's just, there's so much going on with all of that, um, that it's, it, it just, it doesn't feel like what we would consider natural or how we thought that we would be conceiving. And then you throw in any kind of medical intervention where you're getting hormones involved, shots, which are not sexy, you know, having your spouse stick a shot in your, uh, your bum is not a fun thing. Um, it doesn't feel sexy and it doesn't probably look sexy either, <laughs> right? Having, having to use a needle on your, on your beloved. Um, so you get all of that mixed in and yeah, the, the sex life plummets, um, in so many ways, but it's also that emotional intimacy. You're so focused on the goal. You're no longer, you can't really turn toward one another to use John Gottman's term, um, turning toward one another. And you can't really do that because you're so focused on we, the dream of having a child which there's nothing wrong with that dream. And we, we live in the 21st century where that dream can be realized medically in certain, you know, in certain ways for people or through building a family through adoption. Um, so there's, there's so much that's focused on just the, the, the procreation. And then if one does get pregnant, then there's, there's 
and you've had losses or you haven't been able to get pregnant before, there's a lot of anxiety around, am I going to be able to carry it? And so that affects your sex life, right? Uh, you know, oh gosh, you know, I don't want to do anything that would might disrupt the womb. And so it doesn't feel, even though that's, that's not medically so. Um, th there's there's just this feeling that you know you've you've worked so hard to do this thing and you don't want anything to screw it up, and so that's really hard. And then after, if you're able to um, give birth to a child after that, uh, then it's then a, a lot of it is the the normal postpartum stuff that's that's always hard for it, for anyone that has given birth. So um, so if you have the the pre like trying to have a baby and then finally getting pregnant and then the postpartum stuff that's a long stretch of time <laughs> for sexuality in a in a relationship to be disrupted so there's a lot of pain there and a lot of distortion around your body and how it feels and um and for those that are the caring uh person they're just the the ways that that changes your body and you have to get get used to your new body after you've had a pregnancy and then there's all those it, for those that have had pregnancy losses um i myself had six mis miscarriages and in the course of five years so that relationship with my body it's like okay we have to do more tests we have to figure out what's wrong why is this happening and you know there's just there's so much that goes on in that journey that that takes you away from your body and from yourself and um and oftentimes from your friends because it's so painful to look at other people who have the dream that or at least the perceived dream you 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 perceive that they have the dream that you are longing for and i bet it that was a very long answer to answer your question <laughs> yes it just has to feel isolating right because i i've talked to others before that it's just a topic that we don't uh, actively discuss because most likely the pain and the shame that people have around it and certainly that's starting to change where people are starting to uh, be more open about the grief that they experience with that but it's also creating that space right for people to hold that space for one another but if you would tell me a little bit about how have you been been able to kind of reclaim your body back, right? Or have you been able to? And creating a, you know, creating yeah. a relationship with your body. Yeah, that's, that's a really, that's a really great question. So yes, some of the things that I think are really helpful that helped me and that I, that I use with clients um, is the use of ritual and, 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 acknowledgement of the grief because um there's a really great book out there i, I don't know if you've read it um but it's it's called the body keeps the score oh, i love that and have you read it oh yeah i love it yes yeah yeah so it makes total sense to me um and i have seen it even before i read that book i i understood the concept because i've seen it happen but our bodies they keep so much of what happens to us in in them that um it you know they're they they keep those deep griefs and those pains and ritual can be used as a container for those big emotions it can contain things that we cannot 
we, we cannot or we feel like we dare not put out there um, to others. And so the use of ritual in naming our griefs and naming our losses, um, there's a, in the Episcopal Church, we have um, Enriching Our Worship 5, which is uh, Rachel's Tears, Hannah's Hopes, and it has a number of prayers, litanies, and liturgy for uh, miscarriage, infant loss, um, uh, adoption, abortion, like all sorts of different things where it can help provide a ritual container and prayers that, that articulate things that we're feeling, um, you know, with, with those, those sighs too deep for words, the spirit intercedes for us. And that's a lot where I think people find themselves on the fertility journey, especially and with their bodies. And so being able to physically do a ritual um, and connecting all those parts is such a release from the body of the grief. Um, being in a place where you know there's a beginning and an end, right? The, the service, uh, the prayer service, or in our in, in a session with me, we'll do the ritual, uh, a ritual that um, I designed for my, my clients very specifically for whatever it is they need. But the, there is a, a place that, that can help contain that and, and you, can, you can release as much as you, you can bear um, in that space. And so like doing physical things like lighting candles, verbally saying the name of your children that that you never got to meet mm. things like that i think are really important um and then the tears that naturally flow from that having a place to just cry in the space of that that prayer time or that ritual time is really important for our body connection and then um i do i do therapeutic interventions around getting doing some guided imagery, um, guided uh, meditation around getting in touch with different body parts and what they need um, for healing. And, um, and that I know is, is very helpful. And I know personally, it was very helpful to me to be able to do that. Yeah, the, the body is so much a part of this journey. And it, it feels like oftentimes like our heads are separated from our bodies because we want, 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 and we feel like our bodies are not complying with what we want. And so there's a, there's a true disconnect there of, of spirit and body. And so repairing that, that damage um, is vital in order to move forward, no matter what, which way you end up moving forward, whether that's having a child biologically or through embryo adoption or, um, or through building a family with, with an adopted child or moving forward like I did with, without having any children uh, and finding other ways to be creative in the world that, was not, that were not biological, um, but ways in which God calls us deeply to do. So um, yeah, the body is definitely a part of this journey with us and in our emotions. <laughs> I love that you create ritual because I think so often we don't have enough rituals in our life, you know, mm -hmm. and especially since our lives have become so much more fast paced and constantly checking off the to-do list and 
things like that, we very often forget to create that sense of ritual in our lives. Mm -hmm. It is a place where we can make connections, slow down, listen to what we really need. Like we really are um, the best communicators of what we actually need within, right? Like our bodies, Mm -hmm. what we need if we just sat and listened (laughs) and created Mm -hmm. that sense of, you know, movement and different things. I often um, had, did uh, movement in, in worship services and worship spaces. And like, I would put movement to Psalms or different things like that. And people would be terrified, right. Of saying, I don't want to do this, or this is strange for me and encouraging them and say, listen, I'm not going to give you you know, more than you can handle with this. And I would invite people and say, listen, I will do what feels scary for me of reading in public. If you're willing <laughs> to try to move to this in a certain way, you know, and it would just be like little arm movements or just little somethings to take in the words differently, right? And to embody mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And so they said, okay, if you're doing something uncomfortable, then, <laughs> then it's okay, <laughs> right? But what happened? And I'll be vulnerable too, but I'm not going first. <laughs> I had some, you know, one of the women who I worked with, she's like, I sit behind a desk all day. I am so unattached from my body. I'm not. Mm. But, and she walked away from that experience of saying like, I have never felt so, you know, at one with myself. Like I've never realized how much I don't pay attention to what my body needs. You know, just doing that simple movement with these words, one makes me take a whole, that passage has a whole different meaning to me now. Mm -hmm. She's like, and it tapped into something I was not aware of. Yes. So like just the simple, like you said, lighting a candle and like taking in its movement and the scent and different things like that allows us to connect to parts of us that we often ignore. And so I love everything that you're saying. It just seems, you know, profound, right? Well, it, it, it is, and it's all, it's all spirit. And, you know, I love, I love that you're encouraging people to do movement in church in, in ways that make sense and, and connect them to scripture and uh, to their faith life. It, it, that's part of the, the ritual, um, for, for people, you know, in my therapeutic place, they all know I'm a priest and some of them come very specifically because they want that. They want to be able to bring, you know, their, their Christianity into it, but others are not, um, Christians, but they may, they have other types of beliefs and, and yet creating a ritual really speaks to, can really speak to any person because it's really crafted for, I, I craft it for them. Um, and the, 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 the words, the movement, you know, sometimes people will have people do a song, you know, the, the, the arts in general, I will say, I feel like are, are ways that, that spirit can move, uh, that, that they, that it just can't in, in our cerebral yeah. world of, you know, 
the, the way that we think about God instead of the way that we experience God, right? So the senses need to be brought into this experience in order to have holistic healing and not just have like mind healing um, or yeah, my body's not bleeding anymore from postpartum, you know, giving birth, post-delivery. So I'm fine now, you know, and I will have clients that come in a couple years after um, they've experienced miscarriage or they've had a birth or whatever um, after a long struggle and they'll, we'll do a ritual and they'll be bawling and saying, I didn't realize how, how still disconnected I was from my body and how angry I still was with it. And so then, then once we have that acknowledgement, then we can begin the healing. But yeah, any way that we can be moving our bodies, there's, there's a wonderful woman in Seattle who does yoga for fertility. And I know that a lot of people just in general, yoga really helps them to connect um, with their spirit and their body and their breath. And I think, I think that's great. Anything that's going to help you experience that um, is, is good. Um, any kind of dance, any kind of movement uh, is, is ritual in its own sense, right? Um, so I encourage my clients to, to do those things that make sense for them um, around movement. And in addition to whatever ritual or whatever therapeutic means we're, we're working on for healing. But it takes all of it, right? It's, it's this holistic thing. And that's, that's how God created us. We have these senses and we have relationships and, and we also can't do it alone. And I, I want to, to emphasize that as well. Not everybody feels like they can be in a group, but, I, but when they are in a group, when they do go to like a fertility struggle group, whether it's online or it's just a few friends that they know also have had struggles or it's a more formal resolve in a um, resolve group, which is uh, the, there's a national resolve uh, uh, fertility struggle, infertility group um, that has local chapters all over the United States. Um, no matter how people are connecting or if it's in my therapy office, um, at least with me, that, that sense of community also helps to dispel the shame because you're hearing other people's stories. They're hearing yours. They're, you're realizing you're not alone in this and you're not the only one that has felt this way before and you will not be the last person to feel this way either. So it's a very hopeful thing to be connected to community um, in order to heal your, your relationship with your body and your relationship with yourself and, and with God to, to that extent too. So all the parts are, are important. Yeah, and I like how, you know, we kind of went back to the beginning there about talking about how it's good, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. aren't necessarily the way we envisioned. There's doesn't mean that there, there's not a sense of holy and divine in a different way, you know? And I think it's, it's the ability to... Um, again, like enter within that grief and that sense of change and recognizing where we can be met, you know, in that time and space. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, I love this. I love the work that you are doing and uh, how you have integrated theology and psychology into the holistic aspect, right, of uh, mm -hmm. 
that you do. We're almost out of time. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, what story have you had to refrain for yourself currently? Uh, so this is, this is the story that I have been reframing for a very long time. And it just it continues to evolve as, as spirit beckons me onward um, with each step. Uh, and I would say that, that uh, becoming a priest in a long established church that has a, a very long centuries old history, um, the, the Anglican church, and then uh, they, it's, the Episcopal church is part of the Anglican church globally. So being a woman, first of all, in that, in that very male space, even though it's become more female, um, or those of us that identify as female, um, excuse me, there's, there's just this story that we need to be doing things in the way that, that, um, that people think that it's always been done traditionally. And I, and you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes for traditionally. Um, because I think a lot of what, what people currently have experienced of church is like this 1950s style church where it was just directly the baby boom and things were very different in our society at that time and people were doing things differently. But if you look, if you really dig in and you dig into the gospels and the book of Acts, things are very different in the church. And, um, and then throughout history, how, how Christ has been a partner in culture and then also been, um, been part of the underground of, of culture. So, so for me coming into this as a, as a female identified person and, uh, looking at this, this established church and then saying to God, okay, but you called me, uh, kind of like the Vicar of Dibley when she says something about being abroad with, with, uh, something about, it was something about her breasts, but she didn't use the term breasts. I can't remember. Anyway, it's just like, you called me. I like to wear dresses and high heels. And, um, so I'm, I just, it's just been really interesting for me to, to, to reframe and and decide who I am really answering. Is this God's call that I'm answering, or is this the church's call? And who, what, what am I willing? Who am I willing to sacrifice for? Right. So, so the story that I've reframed is that I am, I am called deeply by God to be a faithful person, and to follow Jesus. That's that's the the flavor of following God that that I have come into and that and that Jesus and the and the gospels are relevant they're they're exciting they're transformative i mean there's so much um to be said about that and how how i need to live my life out in that way that makes sense for me in my personality um i am i am not enjoy, there's there's so many dynamic people out there i'm not i'm not presiding bishop michael curry okay <laughs> I'm not him, but I am me and I have these gifts that I can offer. And this is how I am able to, to spread um, God's light to other people. And so really getting clear that I'm following God and that I'm not willing to sacrifice my life on the altar of church or church. Um, Cause that's not God. We have a lot of idolatry um, around, uh, around, you know, how we do church and, and, um, 
what it means to be church and we really lose sight of what does it really mean to follow Jesus and and follow what God is and become the person that God has created us to be and so there's and there's so many different ways that all of us are doing it because we are all different and, and created and being unique and in God's image. I mean, it's just astounding to me and I, I love it. Um, so for me, the reframe just has been that I am, I am following God's call and I'm going to see where that leads. And right now it's leading me to work at this incredible church, um, you know, that where they affirm my call and they understand that I am also called to Soul Spa and to doing therapeutic work and workshops and supporting clergy. And that's all part of who I am. And so I, I get to be part of both of these types of communities. And that's where God call it is calling me right now. Now, I don't know, in five years, might be different, um, but I'm going to continue to follow that call and not the call of the church institution, which instead tells me, oh, you're, you're working part-time. Oh my gosh, why don't you want to be a rector? That's like a senior pastor um, in Episcopal speak. Um, you know, you should be thinking about, you know, the, how you're doing your, your institutional ladder climb. I mean, there's just, there's a lot that goes on there that I, I have zero interest in. And for those people that are really deeply called to parish ministry and want to be rectors and want to be deans of cathedrals and bishops, awesome. Obviously, that is what God is calling you to. That is not what God's calling me to. And so being um, able to stay and, and just keep my eyes on God instead of getting drawn into all these other things that has been a constant reframe and continues to be <laughs> the reframing of story um you know like people I'm a, I'm a I'm half time at my church and and I have been part time I've been um it was three quarters time in Minneapolis and I was half time at my church my first church in in Seattle and um half time now and I do I do part time in the church in the way that you would do part-time i'm i'm there two sundays a month and 20 hours a week so i'm only there two days during the week mm. so um so people will often be like wait what how can you be a priest um you know if you're not there every sunday like that's the only day we work <laughs> it's yeah. like sure. so yeah so um reframing that like i i admit to getting very weary of having to reframe that for other people and to remind them that there are so many ways to be a priest. I mean, look at just, just like, look at the Jesuits. They're teachers, they're scientists, they're doing things. Um, but even in our own, in my own tradition, you know, there's people who are you know, military chaplains and uh, hospital chaplains or work at a school or, you know, are working for um, like an assisted living place or, you know, there's lots of different ways to be priest. And so comes in all shapes. Come on, people. We do, right? <laughs> right. The divine, the divine imagination is more than we can ask for or imagine. Let's, let's let it flow. So my motto this year, I feel like not to limit God. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Have a bigger imagination than we do, for sure. Yes, yes, exactly. And so I think the challenge is, I think, for the institutions 
is how do we, sure, yes, we play, we, we say that we want to support people in doing creative ministry, but you know, they have, you know, we also have to be pragmatic and practical and how are they going to get paid? And I, I just wish that that would shift, mm -hmm. um, for those people that want to have something more 1950s, I don't even want to say traditional because it's, I mean, what is tradition, um, except for like our prayer book, um, the, but just, you know, this 1950s style parish church where all the programs are run at the parish and, you know, it's the building and it's, it's doing all the things from the building and, you know, how do those places and the people who feel called there, how can they support people who are going out into the world and doing and, and bringing the gospel to, to places where people, other people are? Um, because, you know, the reality is that people are not coming to the, to the church, um, especially in my area, um, in, in Seattle, Northwest, like, hello, we are tree huggers. <laughs> we yeah. can be tree huggers and, and, um, and churchgoers, but, uh, most people don't choose church. Uh, so, and, and with the pandemic, it's really broken open those cracks and, um, yeah, and is is making people rapidly reframe, and then of course all of the grief is coming in. But yeah, it's those are those. Are, okay, that was more than one story I'm reframing, but yes, <laughs> lots of lots. There's always a lot going on because <laughs> spirit is always moving, and we have to follow it. True. Well, I just deeply appreciate you, and I again, you know, what you bring to the world, I think, is so necessary in being a person who ministers and then uh, allows, helps people with their mental health and creating these spaces of ritual in whatever they might look like for each individual person, I think is so, so needed. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. Oh, you're welcome. And, and for you, for your, for what you're doing, how you are, bringing us on your show and, and introducing us to new people. And, and we are, you know, working together to, to create the, the world and the religious life and the spiritual life that we want to see, which is whole yes. and, and part of, part of our sexuality and, and part of who we are. So thank you for your good work. And it's been such a pleasure to be on here and, so glad that we could connect in this way. I want to say that I feel like it's the the words that kept coming to mind was whole, beautiful, and unassuming. Right? <laughs> Just, right. Know, what's, what it's going to be, but exactly. Thank you. Thanks, be to God. Thank you.